Welcome to the Jakarta Development Network podcast. This is Thomas Brown. In this episode, we ask the question, why are sensible and carefully designed policies so often not adopted? And when they are adopted, why do they so often fail to generate positive development outcomes, such as security, growth, and equity? In this podcast, from our event on navigating politics for policy effectiveness, we will hear from Yong Mei Zhu of the World Bank, who co-authored the 2017 World Development Report on Governance and the Law. In this talk, Yong Mei will discuss the important role that governance has on making, or indeed breaking, the creation and implementation of good policy. Thank you very much, everybody. Um, I lost my voice yesterday, so I'm saving the rest for tonight. And I want to make this a very conversational uh, discussion with all of you. Uh, I know you are all in development profession, probably working in different sectoral areas. And I, my background is governance, institution development. And I, when I joined the World Bank in 99 as a young professional, I had just come, come out of PhD program writing a dissertation on corruption in theory. Of course, then I grabbed the opportunity to come into the World Bank and figure out exactly what do we do with this very vexing problem of corruption. And turns out you have to take the long view to build institutions really, really slowly. And over the last now 18 years, or 19 years almost, um, I learned a lot and I was very happy to have a sabbatical last two years to be the co-director for the World Development Report. And reflecting on governance and law, what did we do that is not effective in actually changing the quality of institutions in developing countries for it to have a developmental impact? And how do we do it differently? In the end, we come down to politics. And it's actually really interesting because the World Bank is really not known for talking about politics. Right? We are seen as a pretty technocratic organization. For people outside the World Bank, when we say we finally realize how important politics is, and they tell us, Duh, it's a little late. But for us, it's never too late to understand why politics is important for us, the development professionals to understand, and what do we do about it. Right? Understanding is not satisfactory enough. We are all action-oriented people. We want to make change. So how do we really tackle politics? What are the levers we can use? Or what are the levers the reform champions we work with can use to get development policies in implementation? So that's the sort of angle of my talk today. Since I arrived in Indonesia a year ago, I've now had some experience with some of the developmental topics here. So we'll weave into the talk some data, some uh, developmental tough nuts to crack into the talk and, and hope that you will engage if these are also the areas that you work on. So let me start with one area that I work on. Well, it's pretty blurred, I guess. <laughs> I, let me explain. So one of the areas I cover is uh, trade and investment and growth. Now, Indonesia, as you know, President Jokowi has been very much pro uh, uh, foreign investment, pro uh, trade, and pro growth, at least in terms of policy announcements. But when we actually look at the 
FTI restrictions across a range of uh, issues related to restrictions imposed on foreign investors, whether it's personnel restrictions or various screening um, or capital requirement. Indonesia ranks really, really, really lowly, uh, low among all the 65, 70 OECD uh, ranked countries. And since it's blurry, I asked you to guess uh, where does Indonesia rank in FDI restrictedness among 70 high-income and middle-income countries that OECD tracks. Give a guess, one to 70. That's pretty close, That's, it's 65. So bottom number five, I mean, that's a very accurate prediction actually. And if you look at all the sectors, whether it's you know, to be a lawyer or to make a film or to be a forwarder, uh, freight forwarder in the logistic chain, and in uh, many, many areas, actually there, in no area is Indonesia less restrictive compared to an average country in this sample, okay? So if this is the message, actually the only time I got to meet with the president with our uh, management team, this is the message we are sending. You are opening up the economy, but far too slowly to attract the that you actually need for this country to develop. Now, the question is why, right? Why is it that Indonesia is restrictive? Next. And this question is very difficult to, uh, to answer. And we, sometimes we have the luxury of studying a country after the collapse of a dictator, okay? In the case of Tunisia, after the collapse of Ben Ali, we, the World Bank Research Department, could actually get into the nitty-gritty data in terms of firm ownership and their profitability, their employment, their output. In this case, you can see um, Ben Ali and his wife and his ex-wife and their children. And if you look at the entire private sector in Tunisia, the companies that are connected with Ben Ali's families is 1.5% of total number of companies, okay? They produce 5% of total output in the private sector. And give me a guess of how much profit they have in the total profit of private sector as a whole. Make a guess from zero to 100%. Sorry? Well, you are really pessimist. <laughs> <laughs> That's also 0.5% of companies, okay? Um, so 5% of output, yeah, roughly, so 16%, okay? You can say maybe these families, they're just extraordinary entrepreneurs, right? Business managers, they're just great at running business. But of course, when, if the slide is not so blurry, you would see that they're sitting on really uh, profitable, chunky, good assets of uh, the economy, okay? All these banks, the various industries, including schools, the elite private schools, for example, and agriculture, trade, all the things that government managed to put restriction on. Therefore, it's really easy to make money from. 
that's owned by these people who are connected with these com uh, the, com the family. Now, that is not unusual. It's not just a Ben Ali problem. It's a problem of any political system that is not fully contested. So if we look at the next slide, which is actually the data on this country in Suharto's time. Again, this, we have the luxury of studying um, this after the Suharto, you know, collapse of Suharto. But if when we look at the data and look at a few episodes of Suharto's uh, health reports, you know, during the end of his reign, often there are media reports about his, you know, him being sick and being seriously sick. Okay, when these media and you can imagine the companies that are very connected now are more perhaps threatened, right? Their, their sponsor is going to be off the scene soon. And the stock market, in fact, reflects this sentiment. So these are highly connected companies. And during his health episode, especially the serious health episode, value really drops. Now these big bar below zero, that's when the value of the companies connected to Suharto drops a lot. The other companies in the other category, these are not so companies. Their value is affected by his personal health. Right? So it just, this is just one of those rare studies that gives you a quantitative value of political connection. And again, as I said, this is not just an issue with Tunisia or Indonesia or with dictators. Any political system that's not fully contested, you will have the politicians, bureaucrats setting barriers for business people to benefit from, and sometimes they are the same people. And in fact, here, the political and business communities are highly connected. Right? So we don't have the data today, but we won't be surprised to find very similar issues. So now what do we do about it? And we, in one of our work program, we engage a government on this uh, regulatory reform. Regulatory reform, not in the sense of content of regulations, but in the sense of the regulatory process, right? In a sense, any policy, any regulations are products of negotiations. Who are inside those policy arena to negotiate makes a huge difference in what comes out of that process. So if you compare high-income OECD countries, they adopt a variety of ways to open up the space. You know, they will let people know, actually a lot of them even let people know the calendar of regulations before any regulation. They let people know something will be discussed. And they first, uh, they of course will publish the draft regulations for public consultation, you know, public hearing, and they will receive comments, and some who are more enlightened will even respond to those comments to say how the revision reflects your views. Now, that is a very common practice now in high-income countries. But as you can see, in other developing uh, countries, it's not yet a uniform practice, right? You see variations, but some of the very low bars um, this is a, a practice hopefully will emerge. And in the Indonesia case, right now the government is trying to figure out what to do with regulations 
which seem to stimulate so much anxiety, anger, pressure after the fact. Is there something we can do to actually what people, whose uh, interest will be hurt or whose interest will be benefited ahead of time so we make a bit more rational decisions about regulatory content? And you can imagine how political that process will be. Right? That opening up sounds a very easy procedural step, but imagine if we want to reduce restriction on rice import, which is something that all of us here will benefit because we are paying double the price of what our neighbors are paying for the same rice. Right? That decision is difficult because those who have their voice inside the policy arena are those who want to keep the price high. They want to keep the restrictions. They are in the business. Those like us, the consumers, are not really organized. We're not really influencing that agenda. It's not important enough yet for us to pay the cost of organizing. Right? So the question for the report is really about making good policies for development, making good policies for poverty, anti-poverty, is about empowering the little guys, right, the poor people who don't normally have the voice in the political process, in the policy-making process. So how do we tackle that problem? It sounds pretty hopeless, frankly. And often you wonder, in democratic countries, when all, so many poor people, and like in India, they even vote more frequently, uh, more participation in democratic elections from the poor population compared to the rich population. Why is it that they cannot influence policy to their benefit? Something in that political market is not working. Right? So that's the kind of question that we try to tackle. Exactly what's the nature of politics? And then how do we do about it? <clears throat> so conceptually, I don't know whether you can see any of the circles here. Um, Here's a circle on development outcome that I assume all of you care about in your respective field. Well, we are here's um, a circle on rules of the game. Um, and then in the middle is that contested policy arena. So as a conceptual framework, this report is trying to really bring to the center the politics in that policy making and policy implementation process. I don't know how many of you think about this constantly in your work. Saying this, it's just not enough to think about the final education outcome and what advice you give in terms of policy content, but you must think about who is in that arena negotiating, trying to change the content or trying to, uh, trying to uh, sabotage the implementation. And on the right-hand side is, in a way, the sectoral development people, right? In your work, maybe you're just thinking about, okay, the politics of teacher union, the government, the business community who may or may not hire the labor that's coming out of education force. Um, and these are, this is the work that is the sort of the governance people's work. No, my kind of people, right? We are the people who often talk about the rules of the game, whether it's democratic election, whether it's public consultation in regulations, 
whether it's uh, full suffrage, whether it's uh, reservation for women, whether it's decentralization, whether it's independence of judiciary. But the problem for both sides is that both the content of policy and the content of these fundamental rules is the result of the political process. So I can't get away from understanding how I can advocate a particular rule that empowers voice of the poor. How do I manage the politics to get that sort of policy generated, right? Women reservation, India has it. Do we have it here? No. How do we make it happen? Who are the stakeholders that can come together to say, maybe our women are not represented enough in decision-making process, whether at the village level or at the district level or in parliament? And what is it that will make their voice heard? Right? So for me, the governance people, we need to figure out the politics of changing the fundamental rules. For you, the development people, you need to figure out the politics or policy in your area and the implementation. So that's sort of the conceptual framework for you to be conscious of the power asymmetry and how do you countervail the prevailing powers. And let me just use the visual as an uh, illustration. Policy arena, in our um, visual presentation, we say, who are, for you, just think about whatever area you're working. Think about the inner circle. We call them elites. They don't have to be business elites. It could be political elites, policy elites, anybody who has access to the pen or has the real close access to the person who has the pen. I right? could be smoking cigar in some back room. That sort of people, the inside elites. And then there are the outsiders who we call the citizens, the business, the small ones, okay? The ones that don't really have direct influence in the process, the outer um, circles. You can click. And, and then there are the international community, like me and some of the, our colleagues from GIZ or GFAT. And the different actors, here, um, I will, uh, let me click. Um, so here we have the different actors who have very different interests, right? So let's say you are either a gender activist or disability activist or decentralization activist, somebody who cares about the orange issue, so to speak. Okay? In this case, you don't have an ally yet in the elite circle, no orange dots in the elite circle. So your first job is to cultivate somebody within the elite circle that shares your interest. Whether you do advocacy, convincing, taking them to another country, giving them lots of reports, taking them to a poor place and shake their heart, and I don't know, you have all your tactic. But the goal is to switch at least one powerful elite to be on your side on the issue that you really care about. And at the moment, let's say we have one elite who finally cares about an issue nobody else cares about. And we are strong enough, really, right? In the number game, pretty dispersed people who care about the orange issues. And now you might be able to organize a coalition, a small one at the beginning. I could think about the gun control issue in the US, right? Any time, every time some school gets attacked yet again by some crazy guy owning guns that they shouldn't be owning, the parents, the doctors, the nurses, a lot of people start building 
around that particular policy issue. And yet, in the, in, in the US case, NRA has such a strong hold on all the legislators who vote on this issue. Right? You, this coalition is not going to change the game. So how do we do more to change other people's interests? Often in the legislature, you start bargaining, you start offering somebody else something else that they care about that has nothing to do with gun control or women rights. Right? You start bargaining and getting something back and for them to join your coalition. So there are obviously many tactics. But the point is, every one of us need to think about our arena, who's inside, who's outside, how can we build the voice around the issue that we care about in a smart way. Right? That's just a visual illust illustration. Now, today, this slide really is basically the overall summary of the report in the conceptual sense. I can give you the final conclusions to say, we, the development people, have to do three things. First is to just understand. Right? We diagnose not just why the policies here are bad, but diagnose the political root causes of that problem, such as restriction on FDI, such as no woman, no woman representation in parliament. Right? The different issues, you have to understand exactly what is it, who's capturing in the case of trade restrictions, certain business is capturing the policy process to their benefits, restricting uh, the, in the investment of other competitors or trade from other countries. Whose voice is being excluded? Right? If women, for example, need to be empowered, are they participating in politics sufficiently to actually ask for enhanced role in the political process? And clientelism is another even more tricky issue related to the nature of democracy. We have election, we do give votes to everybody who wants to vote, but the nature of politics, what do I expect out of my politician? Is it really development track results? Or sometimes it's patronage, right? Can he give me a job? Can he take care of my passport? Can he give me some small payoff, maybe a bag of rice? What kind of political transactions are we doing with our elected representatives? And developing countries' democracy in particular suffers from clientelism. So understanding the nature of pol political problem in your sector is the first step. Now we don't want to stop there. This is the focus of my, the rest of my talk, which is what levers we can, do, uh, we can use at all to reshape the political arena. And I'm giving you three. We, in the World Bank, World Development Reports, are very good at giving you lists of threes, so you don't forget. And I have three lists of threes, so it's already a pretty hefty job. Remember three possibilities for consideration, okay, in terms of levers. Can you enhance contestability, which is to reduce the barrier of entry? Instead of just big business people lobbying the policymaker through some cigar sessions. Is there some other way of opening? Of course, that has to be opened by a reformer, right? The non-reformers want to keep it closed. But if you have a reformer, is there a way of opening up the regulatory making um, process, legislative process? So enhancing contestability in different ways, I'll give you some examples. 
And the second thing you can think of is how do I design incentive for people to behave in a way that's counter their self-interest, right? You might have the best environmental regulation. Can you motivate the frontline environmental auditors to actually honestly report what they find in the companies rather than having the payoff and collude and then mark them just above the grade, which is normally what happens in develop, poor uh, developing countries. How do you enhance the incentive of frontline people to do things honestly? The third one is even more difficult. Sometimes the beliefs are so entrenched, right? Gender equality, LGBT rights, disability, a lot of the issues in a lot of societies, it's going to be difficult because a lot of people don't actually believe that's important. How do we change the beliefs to achieve equality goals, justice goals? Uh, I will give one example there. And then for the governance people who think about institutional issues, uh, I this would be a separate talk. For governance people, we tend to be ideology driven in our narrative, right? OECD countries, democratic, rule of law, so why don't we copy all the institutions that we see working in Denmark, Norway, you know, Germany, to any other country that we're working. And turns out that doesn't seem to be very effective. You can copy the look of the institutions, you can't copy the quality of these institutions. So instead of copying, transplanting institutions, this proposal, this report is actually saying, can we do it in the alternative way? which is to think about improving institutional performance over time, whichever shape they, they take. But think about the performance of these institutions. Are they able to make you coordinate better? Are they able to help you generate the kind of cooperation of the civil servants who would rather be lazy or cheat, or the environmental auditors who would rather be bribed? Are you able to get your credible commitment when you announce something as policy uh, intention, the rest of the society actually believe you and then change their behavior accordingly. These are three common problems, whether you're in democracy or your authoritarian regime. So in any country you're working, try to figure out whether they can make incremental change along the performance of these three dimensions. But that's a separate talk, as I said. I want to focus on what can we do in reshaping the policy arena? That first lever, enhancing contestability. I'm giving you a few examples that might be interesting here. This is a very large decentralized country, um, democratic. So let's see what other large decentralized countries are doing in terms of enhancing contestability. And, and then so what? Does it make a developmental difference? One example is from Brazil. Brazil has, on paper, um, universal franchisement. Everybody can vote. But when they had the paper ballot before, a lot of illiterate people, the poor people, they couldn't really vote in the way that finally got um, validated as paper ballot. So a lot of the votes were wasted. Right? They exercised their voice, but they didn't, it wasn't counted. They switch to electronic ballot, make it easier for people to recognize their candidate in picture rather than by name, able to punch uh, some numbers rather than writing illegib not legibly. And this switch alone effectively enfranchised 11% of voters who weren't counted before. 
and they tend to be the poor. So in this particular study, they study the final impact on public spending in the budget, public health spending in the budget, which actually is something that has major impact on poor people's welfare. There is a direct association between this switch, which is a natural experiment in their case, and the increased spending on public health. Okay, this is fancy econometric paper, etc. You can read in detail, but the idea is a, a different way of voting makes a difference in final outcome in public uh, spending decisions. Now, the other uh, example, this is Rwanda. Actually, I shouldn't tell you this is Rwanda because I wanted to give you a test. Um, parliamentary or legislative uh, women representation in different countries in the world, it ranges from you know zero to, well, I guess no country is zero percent of women representation probably some small number in the lowest level, to a high level, okay? And a lot of countries are implementing those policies, give quotas or reserved seats for women. Okay? They either say 33% of seats must be occupied by women or 50%, or they say there must be so many candidates who are women, and then they compete. <laughs> and in the Rwanda case, they also say 50% as the goal, okay? But guess what percentage of women are, what percentage of the legislators are women in Rwanda? Yeah, 66, actually, you know the number. So 67%, this is the highest in the whole world, right? You would think it's Norway or some other enlightened OECD country but actually it's Rwanda. And in many, we look at a lot of post-conflict countries, it's very interesting. In Africa, post-conflict countries like Rwanda, like Liberia, these countries where prolonged civil conflict actually really shook the social structure. Men went to war, women are left, and they are calling the shots. They're making all these difficult decisions in their community, and they demonstrate they can lead. In this case, a lot of um, the women are also in the, you know, in the rebel uh, government, revolutionary front uh, government. And when they come back, they advocated for representation in the formal governance. And even though their law says 50%, uh, they don't need that. They already achieve way above the legal requirement. Right? And in this case, they had the social disruption. In the case of India, India, for example, had village-level representation. They said for in India, which are equivalent of your village government here, every election cycle, one-third of Gram Panchayats, must, the head of those villages must be reserved for women. Okay, they randomly select one-third, but every uh, five years, one-third of the villages get a woman leader. Again, at the beginning, they could be the wife of the last chairman or the daughter of the last chairman, right? These are just symbolic representative of women. But over time, they show they could lead, they might become actual contestants, and they might become the chosen leader. So we are seeing in uh, researching India Rural villages where women lead 
tend to spend more money on water, public health, things actually women and children benefit from. Men will care more about rural roads, maybe culvert, bridges. Uh, in the Indian case also, we have the representation uh, mandated for the lower caste, the untouchables, proportionate to their representation in the population. And this is another way of saying the socially depressed groups historically now have an opportunity to take leadership role. And so these are all massive social experiments. India is really at forefront in many of these massive social experiments. It will take many, many years to change um, gender equality, to, to change the, you know, the caste structure. But that's a, that's a start. And we have data to show that on the women empowerment front, there is certainly developmental impact. Now in Indonesia, I'm just um, putting out some recent data that we produce. In the case of decentralization in Indonesia, 15 years have passed, and we are just curious and say, in terms of all the basic services, education, health, water, sanitation, have we seen the overall trend of improvement? Right? The, the usual story that you read in the newspaper to say corrupt Bupati here, corrupt village governments there, these are data points, single data points, not so interesting for someone who are at the national level trying to figure out the overall story of decentralization, right? So we want to know, in 2001, this is the level of access for five basic services and we aggregate them together. So the model is pretty much in about 30, 35%. Over the 15 years, you can see there is an overall improvement in basic access so building more schools, so kids are in school. They get skill burst attendance. They get more water, more sanitation. All the things that require building and money. Now Indonesia has dramatically improved in the last 15 years. May or may not be what you expected, but that's what we find in data. Now when we ask people before doing the study, what do they think of the dispersion? Right? Over time, improvement, okay, not too surprising. Indonesia has been growing 5% a year for a long time. Do you think there is more inequality or less inequality in the case of Indonesia? Almost all, except one person, tells me their hypothesis is more inequality, right? Richer districts do much, much better. Poorer districts are lagging, lagging further behind. Now, the story is a bit more nuanced. You see this final curve, 2015, you have actually a skinnier curve, which means there is more convergence overall. The distribution is a little bit more tight. But then, of course, you have this very long left tail that worries all of us. This is the Papua, the Maluku, the NTT, all the poor places that we worry about, right? So how do we really figure out the special treatment of those regions? It's not really money. When we do the same graph for money, these places tend to actually have extraordinary amount of capital spending because government has very pro-poor pro -poor places allocation formula. So they actually get on per capita basis sometimes 30, per, 30 times more than their fellow uh, local, uh, local governments. But the quality of governance there is poor. So how do we deal, do it 
in terms of strengthening the accountability in those local area. So the money we pump there actually gets results. Right? Whose voice need to count in their way of spending public resources? And rights to information is another way of enhancing contestability. Right? I talk about the, um, the reservation policy, the decentralization, but everywhere globally, we are also seeing governments opening up and this allows participation by a lot of stakeholders. And originally, it's basically an OECD trend at the beginning. In the 60s, the US, the Sweden, and then overall, over time, OECD countries, the blue ones, really became the steward of transparency. But over the last two decades, as you can see, a lot of middle-income countries, even low-income countries, adopted this because it's not really spread as the norm. People expect it. It's embarrassing for government not to have it. Right? So the question is, how do we take advantage of the rights to actually make impactful interventions? I don't know enough about the Indonesia work in this area, but the law doesn't seem to be as powerful as in the India case. India has almost all information up for grab, and they have personal responsibility to the public information officer. He will be punished if he doesn't give out data in 10 days' time, okay? And NGOs, they are very vibrant. They go and they search for data. They try to figure out how to get our people the benefits that they deserve from all the social programs. I think we can do a lot more here uh, in Indonesia. There is an open government policy, but not yet as powerful uh, as uh, we are making it. While we were doing the report, a lot of people asked us this question. Contestability, great idea, right? Reduce barrier for participation of the poor, of the small businesses, of the women, of the lower caste. But why would elite want to do it? In the end, those who change the rules are those who are powerful, who are holding the pens, the legislators, the policy makers, right? Why do they want to do it? So we, had, we devoted a whole chapter, chapter seven, to study the elite incentives under what conditions you might be dialoguing with someone who find it in their interest to open up to have their power reduced, basically. Right? That's very counterintuitive. Why would I reduce my power by being transparent, by being decentralized, by giving more votes to women or seats to women? And we put the explanations into two categories. And this, may, this will be more relevant for the Indonesia case. In democratically contested areas, when the party in power is not so sure of where they will be next time, right? they might be still staying in power, they might lose. When the power balance is quite similar, but quite equal, they might concede that maybe I will be in opposition next time. If I were in opposition, don't I wish to have transparency requirement on all government budget policy, right? Or don't I wish that I have the civil servants who are professionals rather than the political stooge of the politicians? Don't I wish to have all the power in such a decentralization so at least I capture some cities or some districts by my party? So this sort of very rational calculation in highly contested places explains some of this concession. So in 
Mexico, for example, we have this wonderful study which shows after the federal government implemented the open government policy, you want to understand what, when do the states adopt. This is a federal government. Nobody can make them adopt transparency policy at the state level. The timing of state decision to adopt transparency law is explained actually by the contestability of their political election. So in states where opposition is very powerful, when you, the incumbent, could lose, you are more likely to implement transparency law before you, you leave power. Okay, so in any case, this is useful for you to think, am I in the realism realm when I advocate good policy like this, transparency is good, will my counterpart actually listen to me? If they are very much in power, would they want to give up power? When do I push the button, that is? Um, briefly, if a couple examples on enhancing incentives. And in Indonesia, we look at the local government arena in the previous study. We wanted to figure out central government wants to incentivize local government to do a whole lot of things. Our people in the bank want the central government to incentivize local government to take care of nutrition, right? We, the governance people, want central government to incentivize local government to be not corrupt, spend their money on the right things. Our people in trade or investment want the central government to incentivize local government to simplify licensing requirement, build good business environment. Right? So there are so many things that we think local government should be doing but it's a decentralized country, so the central government has to figure out how to incentivize, not coerce, they can't coerce local governments. So we were looking at the different levers. One particular example, I mean, there are not so many examples of effective levers, but one particular example seemed to be quite promising. In the audit uh, case, the BPK, the independent auditor, track local government audit, and they audit them, and they publish the reports publicly every year. And if you see in 10 years ago, 15 years ago, nearly no local governments have unqualified audit. That was really quite sad, right? All of them were not vote of confidence. The category is dark blue unqualified audit. This is qualified audit. This is adverse opinion. And then they're um, in the middle. This is adverse opinion. This is disclaimer, really, really bad. But over time, you can see that today, more than half of the local governments have unqualified op opinion by the auditors. So at least from an auditing point of view, they're managing their money in a reasonably responsible way, following the rules. They may not be spending on all the good things you want them to spend on. At least they're not stealing. Okay? They are not doing frauds. And so this is the minimum. Uh, condition that you want, local government. And that's a pretty dramatic shift over the last 10 years. It might surprise a lot of you, surprise me, because all I hear is corruption and the bad local governments. Now, what do they do to incentivize this behavior change? The central government has a whole range of conditional cash transfer called DAAKA. You in your various sector might have heard DAAKA education, DAAKA, you know, boss for teacher salary. DACA health, DACA this and that. And in this case, they have this DID, DARA incentive DANA, um, so incentive fund for district. There is minimum condition. You have to 
submit your budget on time, have unqualified audit, and then have e procurement implemented as a system. And auditor, this independent organization, comes to audit you and publish your results, and you don't get money unless you fulfill those conditions. Okay? That's a pretty explicit incentive and pretty easily um, monitored credibly by an independent audit institution. And this is one example um, that seemed to have worked, at least from this data. We want to make sure many other uh, conditional cash transfers through central government to local government works, whether it's teacher certification or nutrition outcome or public health, um, primary health improvement. Now, changing belief, as I said, it's super difficult and not so many great um, studies that show. And now, of course, media is the most, I guess, powerful way of changing beliefs and, and it's just really hard to study it. And there are some more NGO level sort of intervention that can be studied. And this is a really wonderful study in the US where the NGO on a variety of issues, they do door-to-door -door canvassing to try to see whether really entrenched topics can be discussed in 20 minutes by a stranger with whoever opens the door. And in this case, they tried transgender issues. They tried abortion rights issues. There can't be more difficult issues, social issues, to be discussed with a stranger, okay? And their study wants to know whether 20 minutes well-orchestrated conversation could lead to change in beliefs during the conversation and afterwards, three months later, okay? And their studies show that in this particular case, the methodology they designed, 20 minute script that they produced, that they trained the facility, I mean, the, the interviewers, actually were able to change people's um, thoughts about whether women should have rights to have abortion or whether transgender people have exactly the same right as a heterosexual uh, uh, um, uh, person and, and, and not a transgender person. And so in this case, these are very, obviously these studies are few and far between, but we need to find better ways of figure out how do we really change even the most entrenched beliefs if we want to promote equality, right? Equality, LGBT rights, gender rights, all the things people may not actually believe in. So this is just a recap on the findings. As I said, I only spend time really on the middle pillar. Our report, um, when you have time to dig into it on the website, uh, just search WDR 2017, um, give you a bit more material on the other pillars as well. But what I want you to go away with today is to just reflect on your own professional work, whichever sector that you're engaging, to ask yourself, you know, is there something that you can do, both in terms of understanding the root causes that are often political, that are impeding the good policies that you think make so much sense, that you spend so much time drafting, that are not adopted, or the good policies that you promoted and the government accepted, but are poorly implemented. Think about the root causes that are political in nature. And then think about these three potential levers. Something I can do with the contestability. Can I talk to my champion in the ministry to see whose voice should be incorporated? Can we open up? 
have the little people have their voice? Is there a way of designing incentive much more smartly? Can we look at the literature and see who else tried it and it was effective? And is there a way to tackle the fundamental entrenched issues that are related to belief and preferences? So this is more like a, a list of reminders. We often say we can't solve your problem in your sector, but we offer a frame, conceptual frame, to study your problem, perhaps with you together. So that's um, the spirit of this talk. And I like this just to open up a dialogue and, and see whether it has any resonance with your work uh, and open to any other questions. Introduce yourself and ask your question. Thank you. Hi, uh, my name is Andre. I'm just a guy. Um, so my question is just around the word change, right? One of them is how do you cope with the very rapidly changing counterpart? I mean, your champion in the ministry just change places forever, you know, kind of really quickly. We're kind of experiencing that in the energy sector right now. And then the second one is about that that survey that you mentioned. Um, in, in change management, you're, you're kind of trying to look at the changing people who are kind of on the fence. I wonder if that study, that the success is really because you're addressing people who are on the fence more, whereas you're not really, you know, I, I'm not sure how you can change people at, the, at, at either end of it. Right. Just right. thanks. Yeah. Should I? Okay. Yeah, I mean, on the first question, um, I mean, we can't do, we, I don't have any magic bullet for you, for your counterpart changes. I suffered six uh, counterpart in four and a half years in India. Not suffer. Some of them are angels, but one is not. Uh, so you, I have no magic bullet there. But I think that actually points to precisely the point that you cannot count on one person for your work, right? You, you get this champion. When he's gone, you're, you're done. That's not good enough. Yeah. Who else are you engaging outside his office? That's a tough job. Are you in, I don't know which area you're working on. Energy. Energy. So, I mean, I guess, do you work with the, do you talk to the companies? Do you talk to the consumers and parliamentarians or civil servants even deep down the hierarchy? Right? So in a way, just to consciously build that network of support and, and be a little bit not vulnerable, less vulnerable to the change of that one personality is, hopefully a mitigating process. The second one is, and I mean that particular study on the last point of the slide, that's just a random, random selection of people. You never know how they rank. I mean, they, they could find out. I mean, they're a random section of people, so they could range from the very conservative to already liberal attitude. Um, I don't, actually I don't remember whether they take a look at that specificity, whether it's easier, but I will have the same hypothesis as you, that obviously when your starting point is more conservative, it's a bit more difficult to change your mind. But in their case, it's the aggregate impact, average impact. So we, I mean, we can go back and see whether they have any disaggregated fun, uh, um, results, yeah. yeah. If I may go next. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so I'm from India, and you gave a lot of really encouraging examples about uh, opening up the barriers to participation in India. 
My question is more um, in relation to the reverse. Uh, how does the policy arena affect participation in the sense, like in India, there's a lot of politicization of issues. So yes, a poor person might want to uh, vote in favor of pro-poor uh, pro policies, but sometimes that gets hijacked by uh, politics. So is there any uh, big data or macro level data that can actually prove that there is a reverse relationship and how that can actually be used for the benefit of the poor? So if, I, if we look at this original, um, so this mobilization chart, right? That, that frankly, politicians mobilize through all means. They don't mobilize just on development stuff. They mobilize on ideology. I mean, India right now, it's, that's a dominant strategy for one political party for sure. And so I don't, I don't think, I don't know of study as you're saying, um, but I, I agree with you that the parties use all kinds of things to get people together for vote purpose, and that topic definitely is not always about development. And the, the, we have a, a whole book, not, I didn't produce it, our team didn't produce it, but in the same year, we had a whole book uh, in our research department to study one issue, which is the political market, right? You are supposed to have this contract between the elected people and the voters. And why is it that in that transaction, it's not the good policies that benefit them that comes out of that process, right? I voted for you, but I'm somehow very happy to re-elect you even when you did nothing to me, nothing for me. And that's so prevalent in our democracies, in a lot of the poor developing countries. And understand that clientelism, you say, what is it that they are attracted to? Sometimes it is the ideology. It's the identity. Right? The, when I used to work in Bihar, in, just after Lalu's time. Nick, and Lu, uh, Lalu is super popular because he gives voice identity to the lower caste, not because he built strong institutions to do good development stuff per se, but that's the charm of politicians, I guess. Uh, development is only one strategy. They use mixed strategies to build up their vote banks. Any other questions? Uh, yes, my name is Brechtje. I'm from the Netherlands. Um, it's a bit related to this, but um, I, I, I get your point on this picture. But I was wondering how does that work when it comes to populism? Um, because I think in a whole lot of, or many countries in the world, we now see populism where I think the elites don't necessarily steer what the people think, but it's some sort of irrational process of people, voters finding the elites in things that are, as you also mentioned, not necessarily good for them. So is there a specific explanation in this for the outcomes of a populist um, movement or system? I mean, this, this graph is obviously an abstract graph. So any of this switch of color, um, whether you switch it, you know, whether you switch it in this case by, uh, let's make an, a concrete example, right? The, the Florida shooting last year in the gay bar mobilized the LGBT community around gun control issue. 
that's an unexpected outcome. That community was busy advocating LGBT issues, not gun control issues, but that incidence changed them. But the same mobilization could be because of beliefs, the, in the Indian case, the Hindu nationalism, for example, uh, or it could be the, the Trump uh, story or the Trump narrative of poor, the poor people were Americans losing to the rest of the world, to the globalization, etc. So this abstract graph is just to give you a, only the coalition building results, but as to how you switch the color. Populism is widely used at this moment. Um, and, and it's interesting to actually understand, try to understand why is it that when people today, after electing Trump, and yet not seeing the policy that they think they will get, whether they will revise their expectation in the midterm election. Right? So it could be that it's effective because they really do think somebody is listening to them, understands their issue, is offering something, but maybe they will adjust their beliefs. But some countries you can see very persistent voting behavior even after their expectation was disappointed. Uh, I'm Ian Rowland from Danida. Uh, we work with uh, at Kabul Patan level on uh, environmental improvements, uh, and you know we can see with special allocation funds, DAK, they're really important uh, sources of funds for uh, you know getting access to funds at a at a time you know that maybe outside the budgetary cycle they can do it without. DPR, uh, you know, strong intervention. So there's quite a good uh, source of funds if you're wanting to work with Kabul Paten on innovative approaches to waste management, for example. Um, but as you say, you know, they struggle, you know, it's the ones who aren't performing well in their audits don't have access to those funds. So, you know, is there a place for, uh, or a, or a, a space to, to, to get funds like that to Kabupaten and to provinces who are performing, you know, maybe less well on the audit side, but it's such a valuable source of funds that can help to drive them. Are, are we in danger of pushing funds to the better performing Kabupaten and then, you know, leaving others behind, even though they have the best intentions? Um, I'm actually surprised. The are uh, incentive Dana, I talk about, is only 1% of the total transfers to local governments. And the incentive only applies to that small part of money. So it's that they are not really exercising the super incentive as you may think they are, which is to apply audit, uh, unqualified audit is the minimum conditions for all transfers, not at all. So your, if there is a DAC, I don't think there isn't a DAC for our environment. That I know as a fact. All the DACs are education, health. Um, at the moment, there is also the ID, the admin duke. So I don't know what source of funding you are looking at. But in general, the government does have the um, freedom to transfer money on environmental-related issues if they want to. DAC is a bit more difficult because it's national. They have to have a national program. They're convinced they're doing this for all local governments. They have this different instrument called HIBA, which is to say I can give to a subset of local governments, 
um, chunky money. At the moment, they are just doing it for infrastructure purpose, you know, public transport network, for example, for some cities, not all local governments. But in your case, if you engage with the Ministry of Educa uh, Environment and Finance and convince them as an innovation, maybe grant is probably an easier start at the beginning to say, we demonstrate how this can be done and this incentive can be effective. And then we integrate it into a fiscal transfer system. Any more questions? Jeremy? Nope. Okay, well, oh, one more. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for a good presentation and uh, for WDR from the World Bank that's focusing on politics. Um, that's very useful. Um, how is the bank actually going to mainstream uh, these findings into uh, project uh, preparation? Uh, just a very so, practical question. Um, before I came, even when I was a co-director for WDR, we have this, this question as my part of my job to think about operationalization uh, in our language, which is how do we change the way our people work in the front line whether it's project preparation or implementation, et cetera. Um, now I'm in the country office. I'm even more convinced today that this sort of way of thinking, you cannot issue an edict from Washington right, to say, hey, you know, we spent a year and a half reading a lot, writing a lot, we produced this report. Guess what? This wisdom in part on you, can you please do it differently? No, this is never going to happen. We are all adults, we have our way of working. So the, the more effective way of doing operationalization work is to have people who think with this sort of frame to work together with whoever is designing the project to actually ask the right questions. As I said, if I'm not in the energy sector, I would not know what levers to use, right? Because I don't understand the business of that sector. But I can use this frame to ask a lot of questions for this colleague to actually say, yeah, in my sector, this is the nature of politics, the capture problem, the exclusion problem, the clientelism problem, as it's relevant there. But then he can think, dig a little deeper and say, out of the three levers which are relevant for me, and what examples can I draw from global literature? And that's where the facilitator, like, you know, if I were to play that role, could be helpful to say, what can I see from the literature that's tackling the same problem as you are trying to face? To me, that's a collaborative, facilitated operationalization process that's more likely. And in a way, I guess my current role in the bank team is giving me the opportunity to do that because I have a whole program related to all these tough topics. So I can facilitate that conversation with my colleagues, not necessarily wearing a WDR hat, just in the sense that I have internalized this way of thinking myself, I might be able to generate a conversation with someone who wants to have this conversation, but finds a scattered, this is not a dinner party politics conversation, but a rather structured conceptual conversation. Right? So, so that's kind of a, maybe a less revolutionary way of answering your question in terms of operationalization. But within the bank, my colleagues in my team now are scattered, one in Latin America region, one going to Africa, two in Africa, another in uh, the Eastern Europe 
countries where we are each is taking advantage of their own. And then globally, we are producing knowledge products to say, okay, power sector is actually, they have just finished, I haven't read the draft yet, they have just finished uh, political economy of power sector reform because they did two decades of things that try to change, you know, the regulation, the fee, uh, um, cost recovery, et cetera, et cetera, for the utilities and not too successful because of political economy. So they did a soul searching, a big report. We are all looking forward to, you know, reading in that. But all the other sectors need to do similar exercise to say, take our failures seriously, unpack it and learn from it. And then next time when we design another project, we don't have to repeat the same mistake. Okay, uh, if there's no further questions, I'll just wrap it up. So let's all give Young Mayor a big round of applause for an amazing talk. Thank you very much for joining us today.